Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie, takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi, Rick. At the end of season seven, you decided to return to Nicomororo in 2010 with the biggest expedition yet. Yep. We decided to pull out all the stops, you know, go for broke. We were now sure. We knew where the castaway lived and died. And we had compelling evidence <laughs> that the castaway was an American woman of the 1930s. That's pretty good. Mm. If there was proof that Amelia was the castaway, the seventh site was the place to look for it. So our archaeologist devised a plan to clear a much bigger area of the seventh site than we had done before, and then excavate the whole bloody thing. Sounds like a great idea. Lay out two meter lanes. One lane, like, like a bowling alley. Ah. Lane after lane uh, across the whole area, laid out with surveyor's tape. And then the team members, on their hands and knees, with trowels and dustpans, and then we have screens off to the side to screen the stuff that we uh, excavated. We're going to remove the top 10 centimeters of material hmm. uh, and examine it carefully as we remove it and then screen it to make sure we didn't miss anything. It, it was the only way to thoroughly search the site. But doing it that way, you essentially destroy the site in the process, uh, archaeologically. Uh-huh. So... But that's how they do it? Well, that's how he decided to do it. Okay. You know, I, I have to say, I was somewhat reminded of Vietnam. Yeah, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, the plan was to just excavate the whole thing, but very, very carefully. Wow. With, uh, with trowels and dustpans. Hmm. What we really needed to find was something that would conclusively identify the castaway as Amelia Earhart. Now, that could be a unique artifact, you know, something you find that you could match to something she had been wearing that nobody else would ever wear, or an artifact with her name on it, maybe the, a, a watch with an inscription on the back of it, right. although we didn't know that she had anything like that. Hmm. So that didn't seem likely. Or DNA 
from a bone or a tooth. We had been thinking about that for some time. Very, right. I remember looking for looking teeth hard for bones skull. and teeth, but we were going to look much more closely at a much bigger area. Hmm. And then there was the possibility, we thought, that there would be what's known as contact DNA on artifacts that she had handled a lot. Now that's really? common. That's common in in police work. Now you can get DNA off uh, the the handle of a gun that somebody used. Yeah, but in or, that sandy environment and the wind and well, we had been talking to D, uh, one DNA expert in particular that suggested this and thought, you know, it's kind of a long shot, but it's worth a try. Huh, interesting. As it turns out, it's more than kind of a long shot. It's really pretty ridiculous. But at the time, we thought, yeah, okay, well, we'll give it a try. But you can't give it a try ca casually. Uh, we needed, if we were going to try for contact DNA, we'd have to go prepared to recover artifacts in such a way as to preserve possible contact DNA. And that meant people wearing masks, and gloves, oh. and having special bags to put in the artifacts in. That with masks oh, and gloves. Oh, yeah, that's oh, that sounds a so lot of fun. Hot. But we had to equip ourselves with all that stuff, and so that okay, that was part of the plan. And as it turns out, we were already deep into the DNA subject because of something we had collected during the 2007 expedition. Oh, okay. What? So, in 2007, our archaeologists had instructed all the team members to when you're excavating, when you're looking and picking through stuff, collect anything that seems at all out of the ordinary. You don't need to know what it is or even think about what it might be. If it's unusual, collect it. Put it in a bag. Huh. And put it in a bag with a card, with a note about where you found it, when you found it, who found it, etc. What you do with any artifact. Right. Okay, so after the expedition, we get everything back home. And I'm sitting at my desk, piled high with Ziploc bags full of <laughs> artifacts, and going through them and recording, okay, we've got this, we've got this. And I get to a bag that's got little clumps of dirt in it. And I'm thinking, oh, jeez, now they're... Now they're recovering the dirt. <laughs> Wait a minute. There's no dirt at the seventh site. Mm. So I called up the archaeologist. I said, what about this bag with the like clumps of dirt in it? He says, yeah, one of the Fijian crew members that was helping us uh, came to me with this stuff. And he said, this is unusual. What do you want me to do with it? He says, well, it's unusual. Put it in a bag. So he put it in a bag. <laughs> And I said, okay, but there's no, it looks like dirt, but there's no dirt at the seven site. What is this shit? Wait a minute. <laughs> is there a possibility that this is, and so I, we got in touch with people who are experts at identifying archaeological poop. I mean, that's a there thing. There are experts in oh, that. Oh, God, yes. Um, now, they're usually dealing with Neanderthal. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
But yeah. So this cop- should be really easy then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, coprolites are what they're called. But it's it's ancient shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. And hmm. they looked at this stuff and says, well, yeah, it's not quite like any we've seen, but it that does appear to be what it is. They said, well, is there any chance that we could get DNA from something like this? I said, well, yeah, because in traveling down the elementary canal, it sloughs along the sides of the intestine, and yeah, it, it could have, have DNA on it. <laughs> okay. So we get help from... Uh, the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. Oh, is that they, they are have, they specialist in... They have, uh, well, they're specialists in ancient DNA. Okay. Uh, not, not exclusively <laughs> ancient poop DNA. <laughs> yeah. But they, they tackled it and they, they said they'd give it a try. So we were already immersed in this whole DNA subject. Yeah, interesting. We also knew where to look for the airplane or whatever was left of it. So we wanted to do an ROV, remote operated vehicle search, off the west end of the island. Now, we had done a little bit of that with like a a homemade ROV Mm -hmm. in 2007. It worked okay, but uh, it was very limited its capabilities. And we were limited in the kind of ROV we could use because the ship we we're using Naya oh. uh, can't support some kind of huge right that makes sense device so it had to be compact but also very capable so we um, negotiated a contract with a company called Seabotics that made small compact highly effective ROVs oh interesting and and there would be an operator who would come along with the expedition and operate the Seabotics ROV, assisted by a couple of our team members. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. So we had an ROV team. Okay, so we've got all this stuff we're going to do on the biggest for the biggest expedition we'd ever put together, which also meant it was the most expensive expedition oh, we ever put together. How many how many people were you expecting to take? Well, we again we're limited by the number of people Naya can carry. Right. She could carry a total of eighteen passengers, so um, I think we had all the berths accounted for in okay. there, and and wished we had more. Ah. So we had this huge fundraising challenge. Really. We wanted to use everything we had learned about fundraising on our previous expeditions. Now, exclusive TV rights are a good source of funding. But we had also learned that camera crews can slow down the work. If you have a camera crew with you to shoot a documentary, their primary concern is to is to get good footage for their documentary. Right. That's their priority, not sure. the priority of uh, our priority of of doing good efficient work. So in 1997, we had had a three-person ABC crew, mm-hmm. film crew, 
who understood that we have a rule about not reenacting anything. You know, we're all about truth. And we don't want to produce anything that's fake sure. or misleading. So we made it very clear to them that we're not going to find something again for the camera. Yeah. You know, if you're not there when we find it, you missed it. <laughs> We're not going to do that. So, Well, how did that go? Their, their solution to that was anytime they heard that we were going to do something interesting, they'd say, wait till we get there. Oh, you know, <laughs> they'd be on the radio with us. Oh, and what are you doing now? We're going to do that. No, 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 no. Hold off. Hold on. We'll get there. <laughs> so we're always waiting for the camera to show up. Hmm. We even wrote a song about it. Oh, of course you did. Let's well, hear it. Can, will you sing it? <laughs> sure. That's this is this is called "Wait for the Camera." It's to the tune of the old American folk song "Wait for the Wagon." <laughs> Great. We're gonna make a movie, a documentary. We don't do recreations. We do reality. So wait for the camera. Wait for the camera. Wait for the camera and we'll see what we see. We never stage the action. We wouldn't fake a shot. We only shoot what happens. We'll go with what we got. But wait for the camera. Wait for the camera. Wait for the camera and we'll see what we see. We're uninvolved observers. Forget that we are near. Just go about your business, but do it over here. And wait for the camera. Wait for the camera. Wait for the camera, and we'll see what we see. We're Howie, Sam, and Kenny, the pride of ABC. We'll be there in a minute, or maybe two or three. So wait for the camera. Wait for the camera. Wait for the camera and we'll see what we see. <laughs> they were really good sports about this. You know, we, I hope so. we gave them a hard time. But, uh, but for the 2010 expedition, we wanted to avoid that problem. And so we decided to shoot our own video and sell an exclusive license to what we shot, ah. to the highest bidder. Oh. Okay, so we don't have to deal with all that. And because our solution. own cameraman, Mark Smith, yes, knows exactly what the rules are and is very good at being there at the right moment. Right. So that, that was a good plan. <laughs> Publicity about an upcoming expedition always brings a flood of inquiries from production companies who want to come along and make a documentary. Now, most People don't understand how TV documentaries get made. Why would they? Production companies pitch ideas to networks. Production companies don't have money. They need a market that's going to pay them to produce a documentary. So they, they pitch their ideas for a documentary to the people with money, like ABC, NBC, Discovery Channel, History Channel, and now, of course, Netflix and Disney. <laughs> yep. Several production companies had pitched a documentary about our expedition to Discovery Communications, the people that run Discovery Channel and all the various sub-channels of the Discovery Channel. Mm -hmm. But it had always been turned down. 
Well, in this case, we were going to be our own production company. And in November of 2009, I called Discovery Communications directly. Mm. And I was able to connect with one of their senior production people because back in July of 2009, the online news arm of Discovery, discoverynews.com, had interviewed me for an online piece about Amelia's birthday. Oh. Uh, her birthday's coming up. We need to do something, I suppose. It's a good idea. Let's call this guy because every time we look into Emilio, his name comes up. So they oh, call me. Oh, that is cool. So I thought, okay, sure. And it was no big deal. You know, we had a nice talk on the phone and they, they wrote it up. Well, that piece on Discovery News got... That, let me do this again. Well, that piece on discoverynews.com ended up getting more hits than anything they had ever done. Oh, that's what a great start then. It just blew them away. <laughs> so when I called the TV people about maybe working with us, eh, okay, we'll talk to you. Okay. Hmm. I explained what we that we had decided to shoot our own video and sell exclusive licensing rights instead. And this guy agreed with me. He says, your position makes a lot of sense for both for us and uh, for you. And then they could see it before they decided right. or to right. do it or not He said, the, the reason we've turned on all the these pitches from other production companies, because uh, expeditions are risky. You spend a lot of money without knowing whether anything will be found. Ah. So the idea is, okay, so we'll pay something to get an exclusive look at whatever happens out there. Mm -hmm. And then if uh, we like it, we'll buy it and do a thing. Okay. And and what a great uh, way to present it on Discovery. That's Well, that's... Discovery's a good market for that yeah, kind yes, of thing. Yes, and yeah. it works and for both that, of you. At that time, Discovery was doing a lot with documentaries. Yeah. They had a huge documentary department with some very, very good people. Ah. The guy I was talking to said he'd he'd like to meet with me and our cameraman Mark Smith ah. to see what we could work out. You know, come on down to Washington. They were in uh, Silver Spring. Okay. Their their headquarters were in Silver Spring, just on the Beltway. Mm -hmm. And he'd like Mark and me to come down there and basically pitch them. You know, yeah. we we're like a production company. Right. So Mark put together a video presentation using footage from our previous expeditions. Now, typically a video pitch like this, and it's a very typical thing to do, is like less than three minutes long. These are very busy people, and they have a very short attention span, <laughs> and you're lucky if they watch more than 30 seconds or whatever you put together. They make their decisions very quickly. But Mark found, and I agreed with him, we needed at least eight minutes to even begin to show what we had to offer and the evidence we had and the kind of footage we already had. We hope they'd watch at least a few minutes of it. Uh. So we get down there and they've got all their, their top people in the room and Mark's got his laptop and we pull this thing up and start playing it and hold our breath. <laughs> And they sit there like statues for the whole eight minutes. I mean, they were <laughs> riveted. And Mark and I are That's looking back and forth sign. at each other. It's like, what 
Good God. You know, we didn't expect this. Needless to say, they were, okay, look, we really want to talk oh, about that's this. that's great. So it quickly went up the chain of command. In January of 2010, we had a lunch with the head of Discovery Specials. The deal had evolved by then. They were interested in not just kind of buying an option on whatever. We, they wanted to make a show about this. Oh, and they cool. were willing to hire Mark to shoot for them. And they would also send a second cameraman along as a backup and to shoot interviews to give Mark more latitude to shoot the work. Yeah. By the end of this lunch and talking about all the things they wanted to do, the head of uh, Discovery Special said, I don't see any way to do this in less than two hours. Wow. So, wow. We're talking about a two-hour Discovery Channel special. Of course, we, we still didn't know how much Discovery was going to pay for the privilege of coming along with us. <laughs> and that's a big question. But two-hour special, it's going to be some serious money. Yes, we knew that. And, and it's we definitely a commitment. It's a commitment. And... We knew there was going to be a lot of negotiation, but it was looking really good. <laughs> you know, we've got our biggest expedition yet planned, ambitious plan. And now Discovery Channel wants to make a two-hour special about it. We're feeling pretty good. I bet. And then I get an email from Fiji that our boat blew up. What? Yeah. The Naya? Naya. You're kidding. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. February 2nd, 2010. Naya was in the, it's not dry dock. It was in for an annual overhaul in a slipway. Mm -hmm. And they had a team of industrial painters coating a water tank. The ship's drinking water. Oh, with the, on the ship. Uh, on the ship. Yeah. Freshwater tank. And that tank's located under the passenger accommodation area, under all the cabins. Mm -hmm. Well, somebody was careless. You know, they're in their painting, so there's flammable material. Oh. And however it happened, it blew up. Wow. Were they injured? Yeah. One of the painters was killed. Really? Yeah, this oh, is gosh. serious. Okay, the whole ship didn't blow up, but... But still, um, did yeah, it did I it mean, actually puncture the hull? N not the external hull. No. It just made a total mess. Of yeah. The oh gosh, I bet. Interior of the ship. Well, they took a look at the extent of the damage, and um, he said, "All right, we've got this Tiger Charter coming up. Gives us eight months to rebuild all the staterooms." Oh my gosh. And they they thought they could do it. And they were considering our charter to be their absolute, absolute deadline. They're going to get this done no oh. matter what. But we're looking at this. We're saying, oh, man, this was the last thing we needed. Really? And there's nothing we can do about it I, except wish them well and, you know. Yes. I mean, do you were you confident that they could make a schedule like that? I mean, is that Well, likely? I didn't have any choice. I, yeah. I, I know Rob real well. Yeah. He always levels with me, and I always level with him. Mm. And if he said, yeah, we're going to get this sucker ready, we're going to take you to Niku. Okay. Good. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my God. That's, uh, 
that that was an interesting development. But it wasn't the first time that uh, <laughs> the unexpected happened. No. So it's like there's always we something. We just hitched up our trousers and continued to march. In March of 2010, we had a meeting in Florida of our Earhart Project Advisory Council, which were all the Tiger members who were helping us with the research and planning of the expedition, plus all people that were on the team and wanted to be on the team. We had several alternates. We had more people who wanted to go than we had room to, to go. So we're going to go down to Florida to have this meeting. Well, at that time, we had a member of our board of directors who was the CEO of a very large private company in Philadelphia, and they had business jets. Oh, And he wanted to go to this meeting, of course. He's going to go on the company jet. And he said, well, as long as I'm going, you guys might as well, might as well ride along with me because <laughs> he's right, you know, we're in the Philadelphia area. And we reached out to Discovery and said, hey, uh, you guys are just down to Washington. You want to come up to Philly? You can have a ride to Florida with us in uh, the Gulf Stream. <laughs> and this thing's, a, I think it was a G500 or a, G, a G550. This is a big Gulf Stream. It's a very nice airplane. <laughs> and well, that's we, a perk. We had, well, we had had occasion once in a while to catch rides in this airplane. <laughs> and uh, boy, there's nothing that'll spoil you faster <laughs> really? than a private jet. The young woman who was tagged to be the senior producer for the documentary they were hoping to make, we were in negotiations, with, came along and rode along with us in the airplane. <laughs> and she was there for our meeting. Something that happened at, at the meeting. We're... <laughs> we're uh, Talking about how, well, yeah, um, millionaire board member, if you'd like to come to Nicomararo, I'm sure we can make room for you on the boat for a nice contribution. And he said, well, I have no problem making a nice contribution to the expedition, but I'm a, I'm a very busy man, and, and I couldn't afford to be away for as long as you're going to be away. You know, I, I, I could handle like two weeks, but I can't handle three and a half weeks. I mean, mm -hmm. that's too much. Well, I'm sorry, but we can't shorten the expedition just to no. accommodate you. And he goes, yeah, I understand that. Look, would you have a problem with me hiring my own boat to bring me? Oh, my. A second? You're gonna... <laughs> uh, no, no, I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. <laughs> Well, let me look into that. Yeah. Mm. Well, okay. <laughs> now I'm I'm not just the expedition leader. I'm some kind of commodore with a fleet <laughs> going to Nicomarara. This You're is pretty cool. You have to cool. change your hats. I got to change my hat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, God. So this thing is getting bigger and bigger, and we. Uh, and of course, the discovery producer that was there is watching all this and said, holy moly, this thing is going to be fantastic. Bottom line is by April 12th of 2010, we had a signed contract with a sponsorship of $500,000, which was just... Wow. Wow. I mean, that's 
an order of magnitude greater than anything yes. we have oh, ever really right. so okay great but i was still concerned about this issue of um, not doing anything fake and i i knew that documentary producers like to do reenactments like to do recreations you know, dress up people to yeah but at this point with with your photographer there you can control that right well because he's he's your guy he, yeah he's he's not going to film something we don't want film but they're going to send their own cameraman too and so the, the, there was this discussion i wanted to make it very clear to them okay like ahead of that, time that we're not going to do this so i i, I sent an email to the the boss mm-hmm. at Discovery, and I, I said, you know, I, we may as well get this out in the open because it's going to come up again and again. I think recreations in historical documentaries are unnecessary and fundamentally dishonest. Reenactments have become standard and expected, but that doesn't make them desirable. Is it more dramatic to see black and white footage of Earhart's actual Lockheed Electra? or high-definition color footage of some vaguely similar airplane. Hmm. It's the gripping story, not the pretty pictures, that will keep the audience away from the remote during the interminable commercial breaks. (laughs) Did you actually say that? Yeah, (laughs) I actually said that. Hmm. In a documentary film, there should be no demand on the audience for the willing suspension of disbelief. Okay. Yes. I mean, that's clear. Yeah. And I made it clear. I said, our team will not participate in reenactments, recreations. Okay. We got that. We got that said. All right. (laughs) Just don't ask us to do that. All right. I I thought we had everything set to go. You know, and the the deal's made. We're in the middle of putting together the, the ROV stuff and all the DNA stuff. And there's so much going on. And as we were in the middle of doing all these preparations, we had another breakthrough in the evidence. Really? Yeah. In March, our um, forensic imaging mm-hmm. expert, Jeff Glickman, had said, well, you know, as long as you're going out there, why don't you send me all the, the negatives from all the historical photos of the island that you have, because I can get the best information from the negatives, not not prints. So meaning the the photos that you had that were shot contemporarily yeah, the, the, from the, her... the, the, the best sources we had. Now, we didn't have original negatives for any real historic mm-hmm. photos, but we had the, the negatives that we had taken. Right, right. The, so he ne- wanted all of those photos, all of yours and all the ones that you have collected over yeah, the years yeah uh, now not necessarily pictures that we had taken but copy photos that we had taken of historical right, right pictures right. and yeah. he said, i'll look at those and if i see something interesting that you might want to check out i'll point them out to you oh sure okay you know so we gather all that stuff up and then um in april the phone rings and it's jeff among the images he was looking at, the negatives, were negatives of copy photos Pat had taken during our visit to Eric Bevington in 1992. Bevington 
was the British Colonial Service officer who was on the expedition that visited Gardner Island, now Nicomororo, in October of 1937. He had taken a whole bunch of pictures, and he showed us his photo album and allowed Pat to take copy photos of all dozens of, of photos. Okay, so one of those photos captioned Gardner Island and the Wreck shows the western shoreline of the island from just offshore and it includes a good profile view of the Norwich City shipwreck and it's in the right hand side of the the frame right so Jeff's on the phone and he says uh, you know that Bevington photo that shows the shipwreck and he, yeah what's that sticking up out of the water on the reef on the left hand side of the frame I don't know let me pull up my copy so I pull out my copy of the photograph I look at it. There's nothing sticking up out of the water. What are you talking about? Yes, there is. No, there isn't. <laughs> we went back and forth. I said, look, let me send you the image I'm looking at. Okay. And when I saw <laughs> Jeff's copy, uh, I immediately saw what he was talking about. You see, back in 92, when I first saw that photograph, I was most interested in the shipwreck. Right. And what kind of condition it was in. So this is like 1992, and when you work with photographs, you take the negatives down to the photo uh, shop, down to the camera shop, oh. and and they had a machine where you could do your own blow-ups right. and so forth. So I blew up that very small photograph, and I was interested in the shipwreck, so I cropped out the left-hand side of the frame. <laughs> Ah, and I, so he had the whole one. So in all these years, between 92 and this is now 2010 we're talking about, I had always been looking at this cropped version of the photo. So when Jeff says, what's that sticking up out of the water? I said, there's nothing sticking up out of the water. <laughs> but of course, he's working with the original copy, Nick, so he had the full frame. Wow. And as soon as I saw what he was saying, I said, wow. Oh, uh, yeah, there's something there. It, it's, it's tiny and it's fuzzy. But it's clearly not natural. It's just something sticking right up. It, it's not a coral block. I know what coral blocks look like. And there are a few of them that have been tossed up on the reef. But mm. not in that area. Those things don't move. They toss up and they, they stay right there. So, so this, this isn't natural. And at the time the photo was taken, and this is October of 1937, the island was uninhabited. And he was, a, he was uh, their overhead photos that he took. They're not overhead photos. Bevington was on uh, a ship, the Royal Colony Ship Niminoa. This photo was taken from aboard Niminoa, standing off the coast. Uh, so he's just looking at the shoreline. Right. The island's uninhabited. There shouldn't be anything sticking up out of the water on that reef. Hmm. So I said, all right, well, what do we do with this? I... I, I started calling it Nessie. You know, it's like the Loch Ness Monster. I was, uh, there's something sticking up out of the water. You know, we're kind of making fun of it. We don't know what this thing is, but it, it shouldn't be there. Well, we obviously needed a better copy of the original photo. By, the, by this time, Bevington was dead, but his papers, including his photo album, were now at the Oxford University Rhodes House Library. Uh. So I got in touch with them, and I had explained the whole thing. We said, we, there's this one photo in that album, and we'd like a high-resolution scan of that photo. Which now could happen. 
yeah. than it could yeah, have been then. Back in yeah. 92, there was no such thing. Yeah. They said, yeah, well, we can, we can do that. But uh, the best we can give you is 600 DPI, 600 mm. dots per inch. Well, good, though. Which, it's not great, but it's what we could get. So they went ahead and did that. Of course, we had to pay for it, and they sent us the, the um, 600 DPI scan. Well, when we got it, we were blown away. Much more detail visible uh. in the high-res scan. This was a complex, man-made object with discernible components of different grayscale values. Of course, it's black and white, right. but different parts of it looked different. Some, some of them were almost white, and others were deep black. Hmm. Uh, very distinctive shapes to these things. And Jeff was able to establish scale in the photograph because we knew the dimensions of the Norwich City. Oh, right. And, right. and that's in the photo. So, okay, there's something in the photo of a size we can measure. Right. And, and then we, um, he can, I couldn't do it, <laughs> uh, extrapolate that. By the end of April, I mean, this is a period of one month from the time Jeff first says, hey, what's sticking up out of the water, to where we have this high-res scan. Mm-hmm. We had a working hypothesis for what the thing was. Huh. Like what? And we also knew exactly where on the reef it was. Uh, this thing seemed to fit the distinctive sizes, shapes, and color, grayscale values, of components of the landing gear of a Lockheed Model 10 Electra. Really? Yeah. And the location matched where we had already, from other evidence, decided the pro plane was probably washed into wow. the ocean. So it's starting to look like maybe one of the main landing gear assemblies got jammed in maybe a, a crack in the reef. This is right in the, the spur and groove portion of the reef, uh -huh. where there are these deep crevasses and then um, so it holes. Yeah, it, been separated from the plane. Yeah, as it washed out, or yeah, that, that's or that, that's just a possibility. Sure, boy, you know this is this is pretty interesting. It, it's even better than you now. It's just it looks like a, a wreckage from a gear assembly. The Lockheed Electra landing gear. I'm going to get a little bit technical right now. Lockheed changed the way the landing gear retracted on the Model Ten after they had made about half of the electras that would ultimately have been made. The first electras had a retraction system that involved what's called a, a worm gear or a bull gear. It's a massive steel crescent with notches in it and a, a screw worm turned through it and pulled it up into the engine nacelle to retract the landing gear. It was efficient, but it was very heavy was and involved say, yeah. this massive piece. So about halfway through, they came up with a different way that eliminated that big, massive crescent of steel. And um, it was called a, a scissors arrangement, but it, it got rid of the bull gear. Hmm. Well, as it turns out, Amelia's airplane was constructor's number 1055, the 55th Electra built 
and it was the last one to have the old worm gear. Oh, so and that's we can see what looks like the a worm gear. Wow, really? So it's not just like you know, this is a Lockheed Electra, just like Earhart's. Wow, one of the fifty-five, and of course, if there's an Electra at Nicomoraro, it can only be Earhart. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Um, but no other electors are unaccounted for that could possibly be hmm. that way. So, okay. This, How many were made? 138. Okay, 138. So, yeah. And they're, they're virtually all accounted for. Yeah. Except yeah. this one. <laughs> and uh, hmm. maybe, maybe we know what happened to this one. But this is a huge piece of evidence yes. and something we wanted to do more with. But we've got an expedition coming up. Uh, we're, we know that there's no big piece of landing gear sitting out there on the reef. Right. We, we've, we've been, been there, there before. Yeah. We, we know there's nothing like that now, and we wouldn't expect there to be. But we can go to that spot and see if there's a crack or a hole that could catch landing gear. Hmm. And if we're lucky, maybe there's even scars or something. So it's definitely something we want to do on this expedition. Oh gosh, yeah. So we're we're pretty excited about this. You know, it, this is April, and we're going to depart around the middle of May. Right. So things are moving that fast here. We added another piece of technology to the the expedition: ground penetrating radar. Oh, really? Yeah. This is this is radar that you wheel over the ground, and it looks down and what it will tell you is whether the ground has been disturbed in this area. Oh, so... And, of course, at the seven site, we're wondering, okay, so a partial skeleton was found laying on top of the ground here, and that now, based on what we know about it, seems to have been Amelia's skeleton. Was Fred also here? Did she bury Fred? Uh, is there a grave here? Well, okay. so that would show up with this. That this was that would show up with radar. GPR. Yeah. So we're going to do that. We we borrowed a, a ground penetrating radar unit from a a company in Maryland. They they sent along a, a young volunteer operator. Oh, really? A kid who knew how to use this. Yeah. So, huh. Okay. Cool. <laughs> we also got an unexpected boost to our underwater search capability. The contractor who's going to do the remote-operated vehicle mm-hmm. work for us, Seabotics, was able to borrow a sonar-equipped autonomous underwater vehicle, oh. an AUV, a small robot torpedo. It was probably uh, four feet long mm-hmm. by eight or ten inches in diameter. Yeah. Just a... Um, and a driven little, from the... Oh, and it's got its own propeller, its own propulsion system. And you can program this thing Ah. to go out and do a survey. So it'll do a grid. Oh, Oh, wow. And you program it to go down here, come back here, go down here, come back here. And when you get done, come back here. It's like a hunting dog. (laughs) (laughs) And very cool. Mm -hmm. So that meant we were going to be able to do a sonar survey of the lagoon, which yeah. we always wanted to do. Yeah, wow. Now, meanwhile, Naya's repairs were coming along well, and uh, she would be ready to meet us in Samoa on schedule. 
Wow. You know, we'd had that big explosion and fire that wrecked the passenger cabins. Mm. But um, they had committed to being ready to do the charter for us. Wow. And they came through. Really? <laughs> minus some small amenities. Like, uh, <laughs> no. we didn't have doors on our cabin heads, a bathroom shower. <laughs> it was just a like a, a curtain hung there. Hmm. That's okay. No big deal. <laughs> and for the first time... The crew would be made up entirely of native Fijians. Oh. Now, the usual setup was that most of the crew would be Fijians. But there are always two captains on a long charter Mm -hmm. like this. And captains that have to have their licenses and so forth. Right. And in the past, our captains were always Europeans. Mm -hmm. This time... They had Fijians that had just passed their examinations. And oh, stuff. how did so that go? So we had Fijian captains. Yeah. Total Fijian crew. Meanwhile, our millionaire board member <laughs> had chartered. Remember, he, he had come to me during our team meeting and said it would be okay if I hired my own boat because I can't be there for as long as the rest yes. of you. And I said, yeah, <laughs> knock yourself out. <laughs> wow. Well, okay, so he had chartered an elegant motor yacht. Wow. It's going to carry him. And another board member and his wife were going to help share the cost. And the Discovery Channel cameraman, the, the second cameraman they were uh-huh. sitting along, he'd be aboard that boat. Oh. The GPR guy hmm. is going to be with them. And we'd have a second team physician. We already had one team physician with the NIA team. Right. And this would be another team physician we hmm. had. So we'd have plenty of doctors. Yeah. And the plan was for the yacht to join us at Niku a week after the primary team arrived aboard Naya. Ah. So they'd only be there for a couple of weeks. The rest of us would be there for three weeks. Right. Okay. And then both ships would would return to Samoa together at the conclusion of the expedition. Huh. So, so did that... he hire this motor yacht out of Samoa? Oh, it originally came out of Australia. Oh, and oh interesting. they ferried it deadhead up to uh, Samoa. Yeah, it, it was a beautiful boat, <laughs> but it was all aluminum, oh. very light. Well, that has pluses and minuses, hmm. and especially minuses when you're dealing with big seas on an open yeah, ocean gosh. passage, but uh, they hadn't figured that out yet. <laughs> then. But... Okay, so we're set to go, man. I mean, we've got a squadron of boats here. (laughs) We've got more people, more boats, more technology, and a more ambitious agenda than we've ever had before. So next time, let's talk about how that all turned out. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.